Well, surprise, 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 it's Easter. And I know it's probably not a surprise to you, but I can tell you as your pastor, every single year I have multiple people come to me and go, it's Easter, like it snuck up on me, right? We don't like how fast time goes and when we have holidays like this, we're like, it's already Easter, ugh. Well, our surprise over Easter is different than the surprise of the disciples. The disciples were truly surprised. When they got to the empty tomb, they were like, oh my. Right? They had no idea what was going to happen. They had no idea that it would happen. And let's just be clear and let's remember, they watched Jesus get the tar beat out of him. They watched him get tortured to the point of near death and then they watched him get put to death on the cross. They were, I'm sure, watching this whole thing going, there's no way he's living through that. I mean, it was a culture in which if the rich and powerful wanted you eliminated, you would disappear. They would take care of it. And that's what happened to Jesus. He was put to death by the rich and powerful. And how they did it was horrible. And so here he dying and had been put to death and they probably had some kind of like, well, he's our hero and we know that he's tough and he'll figure something out kind of way about them, but he didn't. He didn't fight it. He didn't try to make it stop. He actually even encouraged it to a certain degree. And then he died so quickly. I mean, honestly, they came to break the legs of the three to get them to hasten the process of crucifixion and Jesus was already gone. So not only did he not stand up to it, but he died and died ra rather quickly. Now, we heard in the text that they had yet to figure out the scripture and what had been foretold. They probably didn't remember that Jesus had said that he would live through it. I'm certain that they were standing at the foot of the cross going, oh my. They weren't at the foot of the cross going, eh, he's got this, he'll be back. That isn't what they were doing at all. He was dead. So they were surprised when they got to the empty tomb. I mean, after all, who can die and come back to life? Nobody. Who can do that, right? Who can die and come back to life? That's impossible, right? Who does that? Well, let me introduce you to my friend Jeff. This is Jeff Grish, longtime member of Sheridan. He is a man who has died and risen twice. Jeff is, um, yeah, a longtime member of Sheridan. He's one of your elected leaders. We expect our elected leaders to be uh, spiritual leaders in the church, and he definitely fits that bill. Uh, the first picture, let's go back to the first one. This is uh, Jeff's confirmation picture, I think, is what I've been jokingly saying. Um, I actually think I had that picture taken the same year as Bob Bourne did. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah uh, there you go. There they just... UNL had color. And, yeah, that uh, yeah. was the first year color photo. Um, so um, Jeff has worked at the university um, as a director of operations in the athletic department. We can go to the next photo. Now there you go right there. Um, he is, you might recognize his voice. He does color commentary for women's Husker basketball broadcasts. He's been in the athletic department and doing communications for years and years. Raised his four children here along with his wife, Emily. Um, and again, I consider Jeff a friend. Jeff has a fascinating history of health, of his health life. Um, 
which again came uh, to fore again this year. So why don't you give us your long history? Okay, so originally uh, I'm from Wayne, Nebraska, and in 1986, um, I was diagnosed uh, during a routine sports physical examination this summer uh, with a heart murmur. And that just meant that when the blood got pumped out of my aorta, a little bit of it leaked back in. And it was really subtle at the time. Um, I was recommended for follow-ups and we went and got things checked out and they said, eh, everything's okay, we'll just keep track of it every year. You just keep doing what you're doing. So I played basketball and baseball um, and for the next four years, everything seemed to be going pretty well. Um, the end of my junior year of high school, which was 1990, um, I went in for my examination and the doctor said, you're done playing basketball. Um, your heart is now well over one and a half times its normal size. My sternum was protruding out from my chest because my heart was making room for itself because it was getting so large. And so he said, you're done with sports um, and you can go ahead and graduate from high school and then when you're done with high school, we'll come back and we'll insert a, a mechanical valve and you can get on with your life. And uh, that, that procedure has, at this time, better than a 50-50 chance of survival. I thought that was great. But what are we waiting for? I, I don't want to wait. I don't want to not play basketball. I don't want to not play baseball. Mostly because that summer I was planning on winning a state championship in baseball at Wayne. And so with my mom in the room with me, I said, why don't we do that surgery right now? And the doctor said, well, you know, they're, they're, I can tell you it's a 50-50 chance, but at least there's a lifetime warranty on the valve because if you get a blood clot or if you um, get an infection or if for some reason your sternum breaks, you'll be dead immediately. So it wasn't the valve's fault that you died. And so after <clears throat> I picked my mom up off the floor from having told her, the doctor that I wanted to have surgery right now, we kind of got everything back together. And on May 1st, Three days after my 17th birthday, the day after my mom's 40th birthday, I had heart surgery. And that was an open heart procedure. They inserted a dime-sized plastic valve to replace my aorta. Um, during the surgery, I have no recollection of it, uh, other than while I was unconscious, I spent the whole time talking with my father. And it was like we were in a big waiting room. And my father was still alive at the time, but I never listened to what he said to me. And so while he had my undivided attention, he decided to tell me all the important things that I needed to know. In the middle of that, the lights went out and everything was dark. And I don't know how long it was dark, but it was dark for a while. And then the lights came back on. My dad was still talking. And he said, did you, did you hear what I said? And I said, no. And he said, ah, don't worry. It wasn't that important anyway. And so after some amount of days or time or whatever it felt like at the time, I woke up, and when I woke up, I was alive, and that was good, because I was pretty happy to be alive, and I was really hungry, and I can remember being really hungry, and then they sent me back to a hospital room, and there I was supposed to get better, and after two days of being in that hospital room, my girlfriend Emily came down to visit me in Omaha in the hospital, and I was lying there about as disgusting as you can be. I mean, I was taped together, I had a giant scar down the middle of my chest. There was kind of hardened blood on me. And Emily came in and held my hand and said, I'm glad you're alive. And I think that might have been the first time anybody ever told me that, that they were glad I was alive. That was pretty cool. And 
She just kept holding my hand and I thought, if she can take this, I should do whatever I can to marry this person. And so eventually after a week I got out of the hospital, after a little over seven weeks, I was back on the baseball field. They cleared me, I, I was a little early, but they cleared me. And in August of that year, we won that state baseball championship. And then I graduated from Wayne High School, and I came to the university, I graduated from Nebraska. On April 20th, 1996, I married Emily. We had four great kids, and we've lived a challenging and joyous life. And that wasn't actually even the surgery that I know about, and the one that you had was even, in many ways, more radical. So talk yeah, about that. Yeah, and, and way more recent. So six months ago, uh, I had my second surgery. Right after the 4th of July, I went in um, to a cardiologist for a checkup, and they discovered an aneurysm in my aorta, and said, okay, well, we'll I need to get some more information on this, um, but I, I think this is pretty serious. Um, but we'll get it checked out. So a couple weeks went by, I coached my son Brennan's team to a state baseball championship, which I thought was really good at the time. Um, and then in the middle of August, I went in and saw Dr. Thompson at the Nebraska Heart Hospital. And he said, look, we have a lot of decisions to make and we don't have much time to do it. I think you probably have six months, but we need to figure out when we can schedule this surgery. And this surgery was gonna be way more complicated than the first surgery because they had to go in and take out the plastic valve. It was another open heart surgery, but then they were putting in a hybrid valve. And this hybrid valve was more of the size of maybe like a battery pack rather than just a little piece of plastic. And so for the sake of this surgery, which was much more complicated, he told me straight up, understand we're going to kill you. Um, they put you in a deep hypothermic state they froze me to death. And then they did surgery on me. And then after that surgery, so I don't have any good stories from that. I don't have any good stories from being dead. I was dead. Uh, and so um, they brought me back to life. I woke up, Dr. Thompson was there, and he said, you're a very lucky man. This was progressing much faster than we thought. There's no way that you would have lived to the end of this week and there's a good chance you would not have made it to the end of today. Because your aorta was unraveling. It was and if disintegrating. That, if that had yep. burst, you'd have been dead yep. in seconds. Yes. Yeah. Well, the first time I heard this story, you were telling me about it, because you know, he's a council member, and we were talking after a council meeting, and he's just telling me this, as a matter of fact, as he was telling you. And I was trying to be a good pastor, and be like, oh, mm -hmm. Uh, but inside I was going, oh my gosh, they're going to kill the guy, right? And it was freaking me out. So, um, but you were so peaceful about it. And we're embarking now in a worship series about peace. And you approach this whole thing with such a sense of peace. It's a gift from God, I know. But tell us more about that. Yeah, so I, get, I think I get a lot of that from um, the church, actually. When I was in elementary school in Wayne, Nebraska, I was an assisting minister in my church. And what that entailed was not only reading scriptures, but it was about writing the prayers and reading the prayers and leading the congregation in prayers. And I, we did that kind of on a rotating basis. And I started doing that when I was in third grade. And I always had a real sense that Jesus was walking with me. And, and I got more of that sense kind of reinforced when my dad was with me um, during that first surgery. I, I, I don't know that that was really 
me and my dad sitting there. I mean, it was definitely my dad's voice. Um, but I knew I was not alone, and I get a great sense of strength from my family, and so that's where that comes from. Yeah. And you and I are both in communications. We talk a lot about, you know, what we do with regard to our jobs and communicating. And for me, as I approach, and I know that you kind of do the same thing, but for me, when I approach a sermon, I always ask the question, what's the point? Now, you with your kids especially have kind of talked about the point. What's the point? Yeah, so I've kind of always told my kids, there's no reason to be afraid of death. Death is simply a part of life. And that has been put to me a couple times. But I also saw that with my own father, my grandmother. Um, So I, I saw that in other places, not just in myself. But what I really feel is that we're, we're mostly afraid of being alone. We're not really afraid of death. We're afraid of being alone. And, and you're not alone. And Jesus made sure of that when he died for us on the cross. Wise words. Can we thank Jeff for telling us his story today? The reality, as we've heard, is resurrection is real. It happens. We approach Easter with a very theoretical perspective on resurrection. It's real. We all die and we all rise multiple times in our lives. We just have to work hard as Jeff has done and as we know we should to cultivate our faith, strengthen who we are, and to never be afraid. Because indeed, on this Easter, we remember the Lord is with us. Amen. Let's be in prayer.